Good evening, everybody. Um, we are starting, um, today is going to be week three of uh, Mercy Hill History and Theology. This is, as I've said along, this is kind of our membership class. Uh, it's available, obviously, here, and then also it's on, available um, online for those who might miss a week or whatever that are seeking to, to be involved in uh, for membership. Um, last week, we kind of waded into a little bit of um, our theology, and we talked last week about basic basic concepts or basic ideas that are the framework for what we are theologically. Uh, last week specifically, we talked about us being charismatic, charismatic, Pentecostal, continuationist, however you want to use our phrase, um, meets um, what kind of your understanding of this. Ultimately, as we said last week, it primarily is the idea that we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to work in the church throughout the church age the way that the Holy Spirit worked in the first century, that we are continuing in the last days and the Spirit has been poured out and God is continuing to do things like baptize people in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, prophecy, healing, all those types of things. God is just continuing to do that. And so that would be continuationism. So it's works of the Holy Spirit are continuing in the church today. The second, the, the second idea that we'll talk about today as a general understanding of our theology is we, are, we tend to be reformed in our theology. Uh, now, that has, a, that has a wide range of understanding or a wide range of concept um, that um, hopefully I can kind of bring some clarity to as it relates to who we are as Mercy Hill Church. Um, uh, we, we tend to be in, be in a place as it relates to this that is, this is kind of who we are, this is kind of where we, where we preach from, where we teach from, kind of who we are as a church, but in many ways... There's, a, there's an open-handedness around a decent amount of, of this theology because, um, well, for a lot of different reasons that we'll kind of get into as we go through. Um, Mercy Hill identifies with Reformed theology, the starting point of which is rooted in the sovereignty of God. And I stop there as the beginning point because this is really important to kind of who we are as a church. It is having this overarching understanding of, of the sovereignty of God, that God is, God is the one. God is at work. God is the thing. That, that, that God is the driver. God is the initiator. God is the one who is behind all things. Um, one of the things that throughout early, early parts of my theology, even in ministry, was, um, but I became really uncomfortable with, was kind of the diminishing of God's sovereignty and the control of um, based on me, on what we do, what the decisions we make, how we do things. Um, the, the, um, the outflow of that can be a very man-centric theology, a theology that, that, that centers around what, who we are and our gifting and our abilities and things like that and our decision-making, and it pushes you away from an understanding of God as the originator, God as, as the driver, of all that takes place. And so for me, that's a large part of where this, where this really um, has taken root in us as Mercy Hill Church. You see some of the first verses there. That's one of the reasons why these are kind of the, high, that the starting point of this conversation. First Timothy 5 says, I charge you in the presence of God who, li- who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now that verse I like because it does is it captures the, the, the majesty of who God is, the centrality of who God is. And then from that begins to flow a more theological, a more theological construct. Psalms 115 describes this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, I push that idea, and, I, and, I, and, I, and we have an idea of the sovereignty of God as central to what we do as a church, because as I said earlier, one of the problems that I've run into in the early parts of my ministry from a different theological construct is how church becomes a man-centric concept, where you kind of sit back and you go, well, look at what that guy has done. Look at what that guy has accomplished. I was talking about this the other day, I think, in men's group, and it was not unusual for me to have conversations with people where you'd look at somebody who was in ministry, look at somebody who was a pastor, and they would look at what they'd accomplished and look at that as like, well, that's, that's, that's a justification of who they are. That's a justification of their position. Um, you'd hear, like, I'd be in interactions, and there'd be these pastors, and I'm like, well, that's, like, ridiculous. Like, what he just said and what he did and all that stuff is just ridiculous. And I'd have people say things to me, like, well, that guy's, that, that guy's been responsible for, like, 500 people coming to Christ in the last year. What have you done? And I'm like, well, he didn't really save anybody. He, he has nothing to do with any of that. Anybody who got saved there got saved by the Holy Spirit. And, and, it, and, and what you do doesn't justify, what you've accomplished doesn't justify you. Because Jesus Christ is the one who does it all. Salvation comes by him. And for me, um, because, because you have this diminished idea, this diminished view of the sovereignty of God at work in things like building his church, in things like bringing people to salvation, in things like, in things like the ministry of the gospel in people's hearts and lives— what ends up happening is you move away from God as the thing and God as the answer and God as the being to man, a man-centric idea. And so, I've, so as a result of that, I've been, I've, we've been driven towards this as a foundational idea. The other idea that I've listed there is starting point of which is rooted in the sovereignty of God and the concept of the five solas. Now, now the five solas is something that emerges a part of the Reformation. So that's why, to me, it's tied to the concept of a Reformed theology. The Reformation was that time in which you kind of saw the beginning of the Protestant church, which is the Protestant church, those who protested against the Catholic church. And what was foundational for them was those five sola, uh, sola scriptura, only the scripture, sola fidea, only by faith, sola gratia, only by grace, sola Christos, and, 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 and only glory to God. So those are all five concepts that are, that are sown deeply into who we are as uh, Mercy Hill Church. We talked about this last week as it relates to Sola Scriptura. One of the things I said is the foundation of who we are as a church will always be God's Word. That we, we work through God's Word as, as we are just trying to discover what we do as a church. How we, how we, set, up our, 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 um, how we set up our governmental structure what we preach from the pulpit, how we interact with people as it relates to their marriages, or how we interact with people as it relates to their own, the, counseling them in their own life. All those types of things are not, not like 
what is best practices, what makes the most sense to Tommy, what do we think is the way things should be, but we come back to the Word of God, what does the Word of God say, and then we bring that application in there. That's at the core, that's at the, core of the concept of, of sola scriptura. When Scripture speaks, we speak. When Scripture is silent, we are silent. Because it's not about us, it's what the Word of God says. And so for us, that is a foundationally important concept that was born out of the Reformation that you hang on to, right? So we start with that idea. Everything we do comes out as a result of what the Word of God says. Um, to, to, a really, to a really, like, um, what's the right word to say, way to say this? To a really annoying degree. Like, um, it, Jesse, who's kind of been a part of the elder board now, has been a part of church before this and that, and comes to the elder board, and he's like, dude, like, this elder board is like the nerdiest like group of guys I've ever been around when it comes to dealing with things. So we just like, what does the Bible say? And we like, we just keep going into every little detail, every little thing. Well, what would the Bible tell us to do and how would the Bible tell us to do that? To a degree where it can get really annoying. And, um, and that's because we do take this seriously. Like this does matter to us, that we want to speak when the scripture speaks and we want to be silent when the scripture is silent. Both of those are really important. Um, so, uh, sola fide, um, by faith alone, by grace alone. By grace are you saved through faith. I mean, that's kind of the foundational idea of it, and it's speaking specifically to the concept, um, in many ways, of salvation. How are we saved? We're saved by faith through grace. So, it is, it is, it, it's not because of any works you do. It's not because of anything you've accomplished. Now, the, the emergence of, of the Protestant church during the Reformation was in many ways a, re, a response to um, the Catholic church's requirement of things like, like pain indulgences, all of these requirements, talking a lot about the different sacramental um, aspects you needed to go through, all of those kinds of ideas. And so what, what, what the declaration here is having a proper understanding of what salvation means and where salvation comes from. It is, it is by putting faith in Jesus Christ, and it is given to you by his grace, not because you've earned it. Both those are important ideas. The, the concept of faith is obviously important because what it, what it ties you to is it's my faith in Jesus. So Jesus is the center, center of this. It's not about me. It's about me putting my faith in him, my trusting in him. And then obviously the, the grace piece of it is something that's important because grace is, by definition, undeserved. That's what grace is. Um, this is something that when you, when you think about it as we interact with people, like so many people are unwilling to be gracious towards other people because they're like, well, you don't understand. He did this to me. Well, yeah, that's right. If he was always nice to you, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is undeserved. It is favor that is undeserved. And that's what we talk about as it relates to this. We have salvation by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, and he gives us that salvation out of grace. We don't earn it. We just don't earn it. So if we are talking here at any point in which it's like, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, or, you're, or, or you need to do this to be a Christian, it's wrong. It's wrong. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that there's an outflow from that. You begin to live your life now in response to that. But, but your salvation isn't dependent on that. Um, Sola Christos, again, that's a, fairly, that's, a fairly, uh, that's a fairly straightforward one, right? It's only through Jesus Christ. 
He is, he is the means of salvation. He is the one. Again, a lot of that, is, a lot of that is, is, was birthed in the Reformation movement out of a pushback against what was being taught quite a bit in the Catholic Church, where it was, it was a dependency that the, the church itself in many ways held your salvation. The church itself was the one that was the means of your salvation by going through the different sacraments, by being in this place. You have an intermediator between you and God, which is the priest, and all those different things. And, and the church then had the ability to either, either, either reject or activate your personal salvation. If you weren't in the church, you were out. And they had the ability to control that. Well, it's only by Jesus Christ. It is, it is solely by Jesus Christ that we have salvation. The church is an important is an important um, institution, but it's not. It's it is not. It doesn't hold our salvation. It's only by Jesus Christ. And then, finally, the last is is to the glory to God only, solely for solely for God's glory. Um, and again, that that really buttresses what I started this with as it relates to the sovereignty of God. A theology that puts man at the center of the conversation is one that steals from God the glory he deserves. And so having an understanding that, listen, God builds his church, we don't. God brings people to salvation, we don't. God heals people, we don't. I had, I, just last night I was having a conversation with somebody and they, they were, we were talking about a certain pastor and he's like, yeah, he's a healer. And I was like, he's not a healer. Jesus is the healer. God may use him in healing people, but he's not a healer. He may have a healing ministry along those lines. And it, it seems nitpicky, but, I, but it, to me it's not nitpicky because I've been around enough church situations in which it becomes very easily to slide that conversation into glory for the man. Um, God is the only one who deserves glory. I was talking with, as a result of that conversation last night, and we were talking about a few other things. I'm, I'm, you'll notice I'm kind of a weird duck when it comes to some of the things we do, particularly when it comes to ministering to people um, in, in prayer stuff. Like, it is very, very rare that you'll see me up at the altar or up at the front laying hands on people praying for them. And this is something that became a conviction of mine back when I was a youth pastor, when, when you're the pastor, it's very easy for people to get in line and be like, I want him to pray for me. Like, he, he's God's anointed. He's the guy. I want him to pray for me. And very early on in my ministry, I got this conviction. I don't want anyone to think I'm something special. I don't want anyone to think that, like, I'm the guy who has to pray for you because I'm this or that. And so most of my ministry has been spent, like, when it comes time to pray for people, I spend most, like, and this is something that's been, a, like, I've done this, since I was 27, 28, as a youth pastor. When it would come time for altar ministry, whatever, I would almost always go in the back corner and I would pray for people. And I'm like, I don't have to lay hands on them to pray for them. God can still minister to them, and I can have other people pray for them and have, have, have it not center around Tommy Orlando as being the means of that person's um, life and hope and salvation, healing, or whatever else it might be. It is really important to me that Mercy Hill Church keeps this as an important value. Glory to God alone. That man doesn't deserve anything. And so this is, as I talk through this, this isn't just like, here's a bunch of theology ideas, or here's a bunch of theological concepts that we pass down from, from Protestant church to Protestant church to Protestant church. 
This is deeply set in my conviction as it relates to who we are as Mercy Hill Church and how we conduct ourselves throughout. So, um, so that kind of gives you uh, a couple of like the real foundational ideas of a Reformed view of, of theology, a Reformed view of basic theology within, um, within a Christian church. First, the, first the, the elevation of the sovereignty of God and then each of the five um, solas. In addition, um, we would generally embrace uh, the doctrines of TULIP, uh, historically associated with um, Reformed theology. Um, how many guys have ever heard of that as far as TULIP is concerned? Um, uh, there's, it, stands for several, it stands for five different concepts, um, uh, theological concepts, that are rooted in what, what most people would, would see as a, um, or a lot of people use a Calvinist, or Calvinism, um, T is total depravity, L is limited atonement. Um, so they each stand represent different ideas. Um, you'll never hear us call ourselves a, a Calvinist church or, or teaching or believing in Calvinism. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons. For, there's a lot of different reasons for that because I think the definitions aren't great. What people think of when you when you say those things, um, I, I there's just so much in there that I just don't think is is helpful because of the way people see and 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 um, and understand the terminology. So for me, what I tend to do is say, in a general sense, that's an idea concept that we hold to. But there's basically three steps or three ideas within what Tulip declares um, that we are we tend to be more um, we hold to more more. Um, um, more foundationally. What I mean by more foundationally is, as we've been talking about this whole thing, as we've been talking about all of the theology that, that to this point, and that we'll continue to talk about, the reason why this matters is this isn't about having an academic conversation with you, okay? This isn't, this isn't about seminary. Um, this isn't about a philosophy. What this is about is it is about you guys understanding how it applies to we as Mercy Hill Church, how this is foundational to how we live out church in community. So there are theological concepts, there are theological um, discussions you can have. You know, I, when I was in Bible college, we spent a lot of time in, in guys' dorm rooms arguing until three o'clock in the morning, these minute concepts, right? Um, and whatever, it's all fine, it's all interesting. But there's a lot of different theological concepts that are not that not relevant to the expression of being in community and a church and how we live out this community that we are part of. So the reason why I say that is that's why this framing is, I, I pick out the three of these because as I look at who we are as a church, these become kind of foundational to how we operate. Now even in saying that, um, we, don't, we don't have these kinds of things as litmus tests for whether or not you can be a part of Mercy Hill Church or even whether or not you can be a member of Mercy Hill Church. It's not like, if you come to me and you're like, well, I kind of agree with this, I kind of agree with that, but I'm not sure I agree with this. Okay, that's cool. As long as you're aware of the fact that these are, the, these are foundational ideas that kind of govern how we do things, and you're okay with that, and you're not interested in creating division around them, it's totally fine. Like, nobody's asking you to go, I agree 100% with each of these concepts, and I, don't, and I don't deter in any way. I'm giving you an idea of what kind of governs how we make decisions and how we grow as a church, 
And as long as you can go, oh, no, that's cool, that's fine. I don't necessarily agree with this or don't agree with, or agree with that. But I, I like the outflow of it. I like this church. I like the way in which you guys are doing these things. And my interest isn't in creating division over these concepts. I can go, cool, that's fine. Does that make sense? To me, that's an important thing to understand, especially as we work into membership stuff. This isn't about going, here, this isn't about here, you got to do these things, you got to have this, you got to have this, you got to have this. It's all got to be ducks in a row. And, and honestly, there are churches where they're like that where it is like that. To be a member, you have to, here's this big, long theology ideas that you have to agree with all these things. And to be a member here, you have to agree with every one of them. And that's not, the, I'm not to be critical of, of them doing it. That's just not the way we approach it. And I want you guys to have that heart about this so that when you, when we talk through these things, you're not going, well, that's just, I don't agree with that. I'm, you know what I'm saying? So, the three of, of these that are generally are part of what people view as a, a Calvinistic theology, uh, Reformed Calvinistic theology, that we kind of um, are far more, um, far more govern, like I say, the approach that we take. Um, the first is total depravity, and that's the T in TULIP. Um, and uh, that is... The concept is total depravity is roughly the theology that man can do nothing to redeem himself. Now, understand that. For a lot of people, you talk about the, 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 the theological concept of total depravity, and I've mean, had people say this to me. Like, are you saying people can't do good things? Are you saying that people don't have the ability to do things that are good? And the answer is, yeah, of course they can. This was something that was interesting. I came across a video online the other day, and this gal who was a part of apparently was a part of church and was like in leadership at church and that whole thing. And she left the church. And one of the things she was talking about is how like, how it's just an abusive relationship with God because he basically tells me that there's nothing good in me and the only thing good is in him and yada, yada, yada. And it's always funny to me when I see those things because all it makes me think is you went to a really crappy church that taught you nothing. When the Bible talks about there being no good in us, that's not to say that you can't be a quote-unquote good person or you can't do quote-unquote good things. Lots of people who know nothing about God and lots of people who have no concept of God can do good things. You can help an old lady cross the street. You can give to the poor. You can be a nice person that encourages people. All those things are good things. And you can have a personality that's great. You can have gifts and talents that are wonderful and all those kinds of things. You can be a quote-unquote good person. When Jesus Christ makes the declaration, when they come up to you and then he says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Jesus' declaration there isn't that there's nothing good in you or that you can't do anything good. He's talking about it in this context. There is nothing in you that can work to redeem you. We can't redeem ourselves. And, and what, what needs to be understood about that idea is that is incredibly freeing. That, that creates incredible freedom. Because if I come to you and I say, listen, your redemption is based on how good you are. Now go live. How many, how many of you guys think you're going to be good every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of your life? Well, no. You're going to screw up. Now you're stuck. Now you're stuck in the balance game. 
Now you're stuck in the balance game. Am I doing enough good things to undermine the bad things I've done? I can look to lots of terrible people in the world and acknowledge the fact that they actually did some good things too. I, you know, Hitler loved animals and protected animals. Was, was very much like very into taking care of animals and making sure that they're okay. Hitler like supported all of these programs to help um, the poor people in his country and minimized, minimized um, work schedules for people, offered vacations to people at the government, all these different things. Well, those are all good things. Did it counterbalance all the worst things? No, probably not. But the point of it is all of us are going to have things in our lives. And, and if I'm having to work towards this concept of my goodness earns me where I need to go, that creates a burden on me that is incredible, right? When we make the declaration, when God makes the declaration to us and says, listen, guys, there is nothing in you that counts towards your salvation. But that's fine. Because I am perfect. Because I'm going to do what it takes. And as long as you believe in me, as long as you accept me as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to understand there's no work you have to do. There's no level you need to get to. So that's kind of the idea. The, reason, the, the, the different passages from which we, we draw this idea, John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Very truly, very truly I, say, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So what is Jesus' declaration there? Salvation comes your spirit is born. Your spirit is reborn. Your spirit is enlivened by what? Spirit. And, and flesh doesn't create that spirit renewal. So what his declaration here is that you in your flesh can't do it. It requires the spirit to blow as the wind does. And you can't control that. And you can't create that. Is what Jesus is saying. Um. The other, um, Ephesians chapter 2 is the, is the next passage. As for you, you were dead in your transgress transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now, in, at, now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, receive the impact of those words, right? Receive the impact of that declaration. Who made us alive? What does it say? Christ made us alive. He makes the declaration that we were dead in our trespasses. This is one of the ideas that needs to be, that's one of the ideas that we have to carry into our hearts, into our souls. The declaration about those who, the life of people before Jesus is dead, blind, lost. Dead people don't revive themselves. Blind people can't see the way. Lost people 
need someone to show them the right direction. None of those things are things that you correct. And so that's the, that's the impact of what the Word of God is saying about our lostness in our sin. There's no way to that without Jesus Christ making us alive. And uh, the other passage is Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This, again, is the concept of total depravity that we talked about earlier. No one does good. Now, clearly, Paul is right, not writing there and saying, well, nobody does good things. I'm sure he's aware of people who were nice to people. But this is the idea of our ability to add to ourselves. And he's specifically speaking here about the divide between Jews and Gentiles. He's saying, do we have an advantage? Do we Jews have an advantage over the Gentile? And he says, no. Because nobody has the ability by their acts, by what they do, to redeem themselves. And you see that even more importantly when you look at that particular passage, because Paul here is specifically talking about the acts of the law. He's saying the Jews, the Jews, and in this declaration, he's saying Jews who are following the laws of Moses, following the laws that have been set up, do they have an advantage? And he's saying no. Because even in doing those things, it doesn't add to your salvation, it doesn't add to your redemption. Because we all fall short. We all have no righteousness in us. You follow what we're saying? The reason why I say this, and the reason why this is, this is foundational, is because this is incredibly important in the way in which you preach, in the way in which you teach, in the way in which you pastor, in the way in which you um, counsel people. This is, the, this, is an this is application in the community of Christ. As I said, each of these things are more importantly about, about how we live as a community of faith versus just this kind of ethereal concepts or this idea of like just talking theology. The messages that you will hear from the pulpit are, it's not by your works. You, just, it's not what you do. It's not, you're not bad because of this or bad because of that. We are all not able to do anything to redeem ourselves. And that is an important idea. Because God, you don't, you, you aren't rejected by God because you don't live up to a standard. He wants to call you to the next standard. He wants to draw you to grow in him. He, all, we're, we're going to ask you to, to live in accordance with God's word, to, as Paul writes, to, to, live, to live worthy of the calling you already have. He's saying, this is who you are in Christ, now live up to that. He's not saying, this is who you are in Christ, now make sure you live a certain way so you can hang on to that. And that, um, and, and that feeds into the other aspects of the theology that, that we're talking about even tonight. The second one is the concept of election predestination is embraced by Mercy Hill as the process of salvation. Simply put, we believe that God has chosen from the foundation of time to empower his church to be saved through the ability to see and choose his grace in contrast to the death of sin. Now, in a general sense, what I'm saying in that, in that, in that statement is that when you look at Scripture, 
once again, your salvation and my salvation isn't man-centric. It's not based on what you think, on what you do. We don't get saved because we're the smartest people. We don't get saved because we're the most holy people. We don't get saved because, because we figured things out where other people haven't. We get saved because Jesus Christ looks down on us and draws us to us because from the foundation of time, he called us his. That's, that's the idea that, that, that we talk about. And the reason why that's the case, and there's, there's a lot of other verses as it relates to this, but we can talk about a few of them that you see written there. John, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the broader ideas and some illustrations on this, um, but if you just look in, in Scripture and passages as we go. John chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1 is talking about Jesus Christ coming to this earth. The starting point of that is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on and says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he goes in and he talks about, but there were those who would not receive the light. And that they remained and they continued in darkness. And then this is the passage that then leads into the idea of how salvation then comes to man. How therefore you go from being those who stay in the darkness, who, re who reject the light, and go from that position to being children of God. So this whole conversation, after he introduces, in John chapter 1, after he introduces the, the, the incarnation of God, the incarnation of God as the Word who is Jesus Christ, after he unfolds all of that, he says, now, how we become children of God is by receiving him, by accepting him. What does it say is, is, is how that happens? How are you born again? How are you born to become children of God? It's not of blood. What he's essentially saying there is it's not a bloodline thing. This explains something kind of in, in contrast to um, the concept of being an Israelite, that you're, that you're the children of God, that you're the chosen of God because of the Abrahamic bloodline. So he's saying it's, it's, it's not of blood. It's not because of the bloodline, nor the will of flesh. Now, this, this implication there, this declaration there, um, mirrors very closely with what we read earlier about this idea of um, that the flesh, only, the, the flesh only produces flesh and spirit produces spirit where Jesus says in John chapter 3. So not, not, um, not of the will of flesh, because as Jesus says a couple chapters later, that flesh only produces flesh. Nor the will of man, but of God. What's the but of God? Not the will of man, but the will of God. So the initiator of salvation that is being declared here in John chapter 1 is God leading us to salvation, God bringing us to salvation. Next passage I'd read, um, we look at is um, in John chapter 6. Um, and this is Jesus Christ talking through this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God, 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So what is Jesus' declaration there? It's actually pretty straightforward. He makes the declaration in the last sentence. No one can come to me unless coming to me is granted to them by the Father. That the ability to come to Christ is something that is initiated not by our wisdom, not by our spirituality, not by our, not by our flesh, not by our figuring it out, not because we're better, but because God reaches down and grabs a hold of those that he is called to be his church, called to be his children, and he draws us and he reveals something about who he is to us outside of us. Again, this is pushing us away from a man-centric idea and moving us towards the sovereignty of God at work in our lives. Um, the other thing that's interesting about that is a lot of this dissertation is coming that we just read here in the um, aftermath of this, the, the interaction that Jesus Christ has amongst the crowd. If you guys remember, Jesus is talking and he says, he said, if anyone, if anyone wants to be saved, they need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You guys remember that interaction? My all-time favorite conversation Jesus has. Like, I love it. And he says, if anyone wants to be saved, they need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of people were like, what? And it like literally says there, like, Jesus understood that they didn't understand. Like, he goes in and he says he understood, he, 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 he understood that amongst them that they were, they were questioning what he says. And then you go in and he says this. He goes, my flesh is real and my blood is real. To be saved, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So Jesus like doesn't come in and like clarify it for him. He says, well, wait a minute. He didn't do like, well, wait a minute. Like this is like, this is, I'm using this as a metaphor. I'm not actually talking about really my flesh and really my blood. He literally does the exact opposite and goes, my flesh is real that I'm talking about. My, my blood is real that I'm talking about. You need to eat that flesh. You need to drink that blood. And it says, and many went away that day. This is a hard teaching. Many went away. How many of you guys are like, well, sure, of course, that makes perfect sense. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, will you guys go? Will you guys leave me? And their declaration was, where will we go? You, right, have the words of life. Where would we go? And Jesus says, this is why I've been telling you. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. What was the difference between the disciples' response to what Jesus Christ said and the crowd's response to what Jesus Christ said? And here's the reality is many of those people who walked away were de declared as Jesus' disciples, people who were following Jesus. What was the difference? And what Jesus is saying is God empowers us to understand the truth of who he is in this way that is beyond our even mindset. There's no way the disciples could explain what Jesus was saying. They just knew because of what the Holy Spirit had revealed to them, that this is truth. 
Like, I don't understand what Jesus is saying. It sounds cannibalistic. It sounds weird and bizarre. But I know he's true. How many of you guys identify with that reality in your own walk and your faith in God? Where you go, I know this is true. I just know it is. And even when I'm struggling, even when I'm having a hard time, this is one of the things that I, this is one of the things that has really, really helped form my idea as it relates to this concept. I've talked to people who have struggled with church and have struggled with relationships and want to have nothing to do with church and they, they want to walk away. And as you talk to them, they won't get to the point of rejecting Jesus. I may be like, I'll be like, cool, I get it. I understand. Church sucks. People suck. Pastors are awful. Terrible things happen. I understand why you don't want to be here. But what do you do with Jesus? And you just see it in their face. Because God has captured their spirit and their soul about the reality of who Jesus Christ is because that's how we get saved. Um, Romans, uh, Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, understand this. I know you've heard this passage before, but understand it in its context. Uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is now? I'm going to read the rest of it, but hold this in your head. What does the mean? What does the term called here represent? Called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, son, of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So called in here, all things work together for good to them who are called by the Lord has a very specific idea. It's not a general idea. It's a very specific idea because he spells out this process that is taking place. He goes, those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's, he's describing the process of salvation that takes place. He's talking about the process of salvation that takes place. That's why if you read what we said here, we're talking about this as the, the, the process of being saved. And the process of salvation, according to what we read here, is it starts with those he foreknew. Then it relates to those that he predestined. Those who were predestined, he called. And then he justified us, and then he's going to glorify us. He's going to, he's going to bring us to glory in, in relationship with him. You have to wrestle with each of those words. You have to understand that this is something that takes place. Um, I, I, I was more of an Ar Arminian in my, in my theology for the first 10 years of my ministry. And one of the things I always used to say is, well, you know, predestination is different than uh, uh, foreknowledge is different than predestination because people would always be would always like there's a whole theological term out there about there, there's a whole theological school of thought that is considered historically heresy which is open theism which is to say that God chooses not to know the future and he's reacting to us because their their belief system was that if God foreknows then it's essentially him setting it in stone and I used to always argue well that God foreknowing something doesn't mean he predestined it which is really fascinating when you realize that as a pastor for almost 12 years, I was making that declaration without understanding the way that these terms are being used here. God does predestine. I mean, I don't know what to say. That's what the verse says. 
It's not simply a foreknowledge, particularly here because, see, the idea of what I was saying earlier is it's easy to say God just knows who's going to be saved. He doesn't orchestrate it. He doesn't create it. He foreknows it. But Paul makes a distinction between those two ideas. He does foreknow, but he also predestines. That's what it says. Um, and I know for a lot of people this is a this is a difficult this is a difficult theology. But you either accept what the word of God says or you don't. You either take it and you embrace it and you go, it's a hard thing, it's not an easy thing to grasp, and there's a lot of implications around it, and I understand it. Or you reject what the word of God says. He predestines people for salvation, and the only reason I say it is because the word of God says it. And there's multiple places in Scripture besides who that deal with predestination. There's multiple places in Scripture that deal with the elect of God. Sit down some time and just look up, predestined and elect. And tell me how many times it comes up. And it comes up multiple times. And I already just gave you the John passage, which says, you're not saved by the will of man, you're saved by the will of God. So, and at the core of this whole idea um, is the idea that... Um, uh, so the idea that it is, again, it flows from the concept of, of the sovereignty of God. Um, one, of the, um, uh, one of the ideas in, um, that, that relates to this is, and I want to take a quick second to describe this because we need to finish up, but, but what I want you to understand is what I think is taking place in the context of the, of the process of salvation is God illuminates our eyes, the eyes of our spirit, to see truth. That's what's taking place. The difference between you and you and people who aren't saved, me and people who reject God, is that their eyes have not been opened to the truth of who God is. And what God does is he opens our eyes and says, this is a better way. And that's where you get the concept of irresistible grace. Irresistible grace isn't the idea that we don't have a choice. It's the idea that we understand the choice that we can make. And I always kind of describe it in this way. Um, it's as if you were born on a slave ship. It was as if you were born on a slave ship. And, and from the time you were born to the time you were in your 20s, you always experienced that slave ship. And the entire time you were on that slave ship, you were told that this is life. This is freedom. This is, this is living your life. And then all of a sudden, what happened when you were about 22, 23, 24 years of age, this wind came and blew your ship and grounded you at this, at this Caribbean island. And everybody had to get off the ship. And you got off the ship and you saw the bright blue waters and the white sandy beach. And you began to be able to run in, into, the, into the heat of the sun and feel the cool breezes. And, you, and you're eating the fresh vegetables and the fresh, fresh fruits and all that stuff. And then somebody turns to you and says, time to get back on the ship. And you have a choice. Do you want to get back on the slave ship or do you want to stay where you are? Well, there's an irresistible choice there, isn't there? There's a, there's, a less, there's a less poetic way in which I've described this. It's like putting in front of somebody a thick, juicy steak and a pile of dog poop and saying, which of the two would you like to eat? When you, when you get to the point in your life that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and lets you see truth, you realize that the freedom the world says it's been offering you is actually slavery. 
And so then the question is, do you want to go back to the slavery of this world or do you want the life and freedom that comes in Jesus Christ? That is irresistible grace. That is God saying to you, here's your choice, which one do you want? And when God illuminates it in your heart and in your life, that's why when people talk about it as being like a robot, it's not that. It's God shows you what is better, and you take it. Um, and there's so many other things we could talk through, and if I went to you and I was like, well, let me ask you. If I gave you a billion dollars, would you give up Jesus? <laughs> and everybody else would say, anybody who's actually been saved says absolutely not. There's nothing you could offer me. Because I've discovered life and truth and hope in Jesus. That's what anchors me. And it's not because you were the smartest. It's not because you were the most spiritual. And all of us know this. It's because Jesus Christ at some point just reached into our hearts and made us alive to knowing who he was. And it's better. Finally, the third concept and the third idea that we hold that's kind of formational to our theology and to our understanding is um, the security of the believers. Um, As Mercy Hill believes and teaches, it's the idea that those who have been truly transformed by the renewing of their minds, becoming new creatures through the knowledge of God's goodness, will not return to the destruction of the world. This is what I was alluding to when I just said earlier, that if I offered you all the things of this life, all the things of this world, I offered you a billion dollars, you wouldn't return. Because you know the goodness of God, you know the truth of God, you know the beauty of God, and you would never trade it. It's the reason why there have been so many martyrs in the history of the church. Because even if it means losing my life, I'll give it up because I believe Jesus Christ is better than all that the world has to offer. I truly believe that when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. And I don't think you can go back to being an old creation. I believe your eyes are opened. I don't think you go back to being blind. I think you're made alive. I don't think you go back to being dead. So we all have stories of different people who um, were were Christians and aren't. I tend to believe in those situations which you're dealing with with people are people who weren't really Christians, who didn't have this transformative change in their lives where they became new creations, where they became... Uh, new, new and alive. They, they, may have went through the, they may have went through the actions. They may have lived for years in the context of, of a Christian culture. But I just don't believe when I look at what the Word of God says as far as transformation, because that's what Christianity is. It is this total transformation of being that you then become untransformed, that you then become, you no longer that new creation. You go back to what you were before. Partially because and I think this is something we can all identify with, what I just said earlier. Those of you who are real Christians, I could offer you everything, and you wouldn't take it. Because Jesus is better. Because Jesus showed us that what is out there is the slave ship. And what is here is freedom and joy and peace and hope. Some of the passages that I think feed into this is Ephesians 1. 11 through 14, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
declaration here is that when we become saved, the Holy Spirit gets put in us, and it is the guarantee that it is the it is what we it is the chip we hold to cash in when we finally get to heaven. He's saying, "I put my Holy Spirit in you because I want you to know that is going to carry you until it's time that we come into into fellowship with Jesus in heaven." Um, the other passage here is Romans. Eight, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one of the things you have to realize, which you have to draw into this re- reality and truth, because this, this, is a, this is a concept that is bled into the truth, church, that isn't true. Do you know who God loves? His children. That, that's the reality of it. When we talk about this God loves everyone, it, the, the Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible teaches that God loves the world, and there's a whole lot of conversation we can have around that. But who God loves is his children. So what separates us from the love of God or the status as his children? Nothing. Um, And then finally, John 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What seems to be Jesus' conviction here? I will not lose those that the Father has given me, and I will raise them up on the last day. And those who love me, those who look on me and love me, will be raised up with me on the last day. When you go through Scripture, it seems as though that's what we see at play. Now, in many ways, I, I find that to be important primarily because of the interaction we have with people. People get fearful of, I did this, I did that, I did this, am I still saved? And it's like, what you do doesn't have anything to do with that. Now, we can have a conversation about whether or not you're truly saved because you're wanting to do those things or you're, you're pursuing doing those things. We can talk about that. And it's possible that you are saved and you're just, you, sin, is, sin is knocking at your door and you're giving in and we can have that conversation. But it's important because people feel um, uh, insecure in their faith when they screw up as though they can lose and, and fall in and out. And I think what we need to do is create a security and say, no, dude, like that's not, that's not how this works because it's not by works. It's not what you do. One of the things that I always find really fascinating to me is everybody says, Everybody says it's not your works that save you. Everybody agrees with that. But guess what? That doctrine is really unimportant if you believe that you lose your salvation by your works. What does it really matter if the initiation is not by works and by grace? If when you get a day into that, what you do causes you to lose it. Then it's not your, your salvation is not sustained by the grace and mercy of God. It's sustained by the works that you do or don't do. That, I think, is, is a doctrine that's difficult to hold to in the, in the process of discipling people into Jesus. 
Now, having said all that I've said, understand this is what frames Mercy Hill Church and how we operate with people. All we're asking you to do is to feel comfortable with that and understand that and believe that it's what you can feel, feel good about being a part of within community. If you have differences about certain things here and there and little of that, totally cool. What we're asking you to do is not create division over things that we might have some disagreement about.